This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. to Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women in sex addiction. I'm Amy. I'm a recovering sexaholic and I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. Before we dig into today's episode topic, I wanted to just share something really quickly that happened to me this week. So I had a really great phone call with a woman in recovery this week. She had been given my number and called me seeking some help. She was feeling really desperate for answers in her recovery. She needed things to be different, very, very different in her life. She needed recovery right now. We had a really great conversation, and as I listened to her talk, the feeling of desperation I heard in her voice sounded and felt very familiar. I remember feeling that way at the beginning of my recovery. I needed answers, and I needed things to change, and I needed it to all happen right now. Like, right now. I couldn't afford years, months, weeks, or even days. I needed it to happen right now. But more than that, I also had this feeling, I remember feeling that way when I was acting out in my addiction. I needed connection and I needed it right now. Connection on demand. I needed validation, intimacy, affection, attention, now, right now. I didn't want to wait around for a real connection to develop in a healthy manner, maybe over days or weeks or months even. I wanted what I wanted, and I wanted it now. My mind flooded with both of these memories as I listened to her talk. As addicts, I think we tend to be obsessive about anything that we are doing. That's kind of the addictive cycle, right? Obsession, preoccupation, ritualization, all these things lead to acting out. We are warned in recovery literature everywhere about the danger of just switching addictions. But not just switching addictions like sex for drugs or alcohol or food, which is the most common that I've seen. We have to be careful to not repeat our addictive cycle with anything, even recovery. I don't know about you, but I can't afford recovery to be a phase in my life that I work through. I can't afford the attitude that I'll ever be done with the steps, done with change, done with improving my life. I definitely think I can feel whole on this journey and I can feel content with where I'm at, but I can't afford to think that this will be just some phase that I work through and then my life will be better, fixed, and everything I've always dreamt it would be. I can, however, tweak that obsession just a few degrees and call it drive. There are just a few degrees difference between obsession and drive. Drive moves me forward. Obsession keeps me stuck. Drive understands patience. Obsession wants everything right now. Drive holds me accountable, where obsession makes me a victim. Drive draws support and connection from others. Obsession just drives misconnection and causes others to even withdraw from us. If you're feeling stuck in recovery, 
If you're feeling like you need answers, all the answers right now, if you're feeling confused and disconnected from others, maybe try a different approach. Rather than speed things up and ram your way through to the answers that you think you need, why don't you try slowing down? Try getting curious. Try asking yourself some questions about the obsession. I find the writing really helps me when I feel this way, but so does connecting with someone else. Talk to others about drive. What drives them? What helps them stay focused? What helps them stay patient? It will go over much better than asking them about how to get rid of an obsession, I promise. What made us really good addicts can make us really awesome at recovery as well. We have a lot of strengths. We can use them in recovery if we just tweak them a few degrees and use them in a healthy way. And that's the difference between obsession and drive. You can just tweak your obsession just a few degrees and have an amazing drive that can help you get things done in a healthy way. Okay, now today. Today is episode 25, where we're going to continue our deep dive into the 12 steps of recovery. We've discussed so far step one and step two in in a lot of depth and have now come to step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. I love the beginning of this step, made a decision. Step three is about decision making. In working step one, we saw and accepted our powerlessness and our unmanageability. We listed it, we wrote about it, and then we told others about it. In working step two, we looked at and accepted our own insanity. Then we worked to develop a belief in a higher power, a power greater than ourselves. Even if that higher power is simply our fellowship and the program that we belong to, we still worked at it. All of this work required acceptance, acceptance of our past, acceptance of our story, acceptance of who we were and what we had done to ourselves and to the others in our lives. Step three, though, now requires us to do something about it. It requires us to make a decision. I'm familiar with decisions, as I'm sure you are. I make a lot of decisions, thousands of decisions probably every day. I feel like overall, I make good decisions. Yeah, okay, some decisions in addiction were not so great. I didn't say I was perfect at it, but I feel like overall, I'm a fairly good decision maker. So when I got to step three, I felt like this would be easy for me. This was already the way I wanted to live my life. I felt like I had already made this decision. I knew I wanted my higher power to run things. So I believed that working this step would really be no big deal for me. Um, so I thought. <laughs> On an early Friday morning, I sat in a classroom waiting for my fellowship meeting to start. I had been a regular at this meeting for a few months now. I was struggling to stay sober, though I had been attending meetings for nearly a year. An older man walked in carrying a bike helmet. The other attendees seemed to know him as there were hugs all around, but we had never met. He sat down in the circle and closed his eyes, waiting for things to start, almost like he was praying. The meeting started and the routine began. We read, we introduced ourselves, we read some more, and then we started the sharing portion of the meeting. This older gentleman began, If this program has taught me anything, it is that I am a decision maker. 
He said it with great authority. I am a decision maker. It might be easier to blame others, easier to be a victim. It might make me feel better when I say things like, it's not my fault, or she started it. It might relieve my guilt and shame when I say to myself, my father abused me and I had a traumatic childhood. But in the end, none of that will matter one bit. If I don't learn to make different decisions, better decisions, and if I don't start consulting with others about my decisions, I make decisions all day long, he said. Recovery demands that I be accountable for these decisions. He went on to tell us about a long line of recent bad decisions in his life that led him to act out and lose his sobriety. As he spoke, the words kept echoing in my head. I am a decision maker. I am a decision maker. I had shown up at that meeting also recently losing my sobriety. And for a really stupid reason, I had had another conversation with this old acting out partner, Steve, and was so triggered afterwards, I acted out with myself. For reasons that eluded me then, I was having a hard time letting go. I said I wanted to let go. I said I never wanted to talk to him again. I certainly didn't want to act out with him again, but I couldn't give it up. The worst part was I kept saying things like, I can't help it that he calls me. I can't make him stop calling me. I didn't know he had my email. I thought I had unfriended him on Facebook. I was the victim here in this relationship. It wasn't my fault. As this older man in our meeting outlined his decisions one by one, I could see myself in each scenario. He was saying some of the things I was saying in my head. It was as if he and I could read each other's minds. And of course we could. We were both sex addicts. We were both struggling with the same thing, accountability for our decisions. As I drove to work that day, the words kept echoing in my head. I am a decision maker. I am a decision maker. All day I thought about the decisions I was making in my life. The decision to stop acting out. The decision to start therapy. The decision to start recovery and find a 12-step group. I thought about the recent move I had made. The relationships I had chosen to be in my life. I thought about where I was at with my career. There were many areas of my life where I was making incredibly thoughtful, intentional decisions that were moving my life in a positive direction. But as I made this mental list throughout the day, I realized that there were many decisions that I wasn't making either. There were several areas of my life where my inaction was costing me dearly. And one of those areas was my sobriety particularly in relation to Steve. I was not a victim like I had said to myself. It was my fault that he was still able to contact me. And so that day I made some decisions. I got into my email and I blocked his account. I deleted all of my old emails from him. I blocked his number and my phone. I unfriended him and blocked him from seeing me or posting on my Facebook page. There was no way he was going to be able to contact me again. I got home and I played Taylor Swift as loud as I could for a good hour on repeat. We are never, ever, ever, ever getting back together. Ever. I had finally made a decision about Steve and it felt great. 
For days, I thought about this idea of being a decision maker in my own life. I thought about the accountability recovery demands from me. But it's more than just my decision making that demands accountability. It's also the indecisions of my life. It's both the actions and the inactions of my life that recovery demands that I be accountable for. What I had learned that week was that both our actions and our inactions reflect back to us our true priorities. Not what we say our priorities are, not what we tell others about our priorities or the things that we want to have happen in our lives, but what our actual priorities are. I was saying I didn't want to have contact with Steve. I was saying that I wanted to stay sober. I was saying the recovery was my priority, but I wasn't making the decisions to back that up. I wasn't acting on those priorities. I wasn't acting at all. I was sitting there allowing things to happen to me rather than acting in my own life. Step three takes us to this point of action. It asks us to make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to a power greater than ourselves. There are two sides to this decision that may feel somewhat contradictory. First is the side of self-will, the decision to give up our desire and need to control everyone and everything. The other side of this decision is that of inaction, We give up the idea that we are victims and make the decision to control what we can control. Let's explore the first side of this decision, self-will. If we've worked a thorough first step, we have come to the conclusion that there are forces in the world we are 100% powerless over. They might be alcohol, lust, narcotics, sexually addictive behavior, love, anger, resentment, or just jealousy. We know that there are things we are powerless over, yet many times we try to exert our own power over them, our own self-will. We also try to exert our power over people and things in our lives. We try to make decisions for them and their own lives. Listen to this quote from the AA Big Book, page 60. It's a little bit long. Hang in there with me. Quote, we were at step three which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that? And just what do we do? The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would go great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But as with most humans, he is most likely to have varied traits. What usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes, on the next occasion, still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Still, the play does not suit him. 
Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he is sure that other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker, even when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants? And do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not, even in his best moments, a producer of confusion rather than harmony? Our actor is self-centered, egocentric as people like to call it now these days. Close quote. I don't know about you, but I can definitely relate to this. There were big areas of my life where I was trying to control everything around me, the lights, the ballet, the costumes, scenery, and other actors. I wanted always to be in control. I wasn't doing it with bad intentions. I was trying to be patient and loving, gentle and considerate. I actually thought I knew better. I thought I knew better how everything should go. I thought I knew how people should act and react. I thought by controlling everything possible, I could control the outcome of everything and get everything that I wanted. I was, as the big book says, a victim of the delusion that I could seize satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I could only manage well. This self-will gone wild was a huge problem for me. All the controlling in the world led me to a serious addiction. All the decision-making for other people drove them away from me, not giving them space to be their own person while I tried to control their lives and the outcomes of everything. The essay Step Into Action book on page 74 says this, quote, When we were running the show, our thoughts were out of control and regularly turned to lustful fantasies. We were plagued by fear, anxiety, despair, resentment, and self-loathing. We imagined spiritual intentions, but rarely took spiritual action. Our choices created painful consequences, and many of our actions were a source of shame and revulsion. Our relationships with those closest to us were poisoned with bitterness and neglect. What did we have to lose by giving up self-will and turning our will and our lives over to a power greater than ourselves? Close quote. Step three is where we finally say, I'm done. I'm done trying to do this on my own. I'm done trying to control my life and the lives of those around me. I will seek consultation. I will seek the will of a power greater than myself who sees more of the universe than me. We give up living a life based solely on what we want all of the time. That's the first part of this decision, giving up that will. The second part of this decision, and the part that may seem a little contradictory to that, is the decision to take action. We live in a world and society where procrastination is easier than action. I'm going to start this tomorrow, next week, or next month. I'm going to wait until this happens before I begin. When I move, then I'll get serious about my health. When I have a better job, then I'll start saving money. When I have some sobriety, then I'll start working the steps and really working that step four I'm so afraid of. Procrastination is one of the massive ways our inaction controls our lives. The other way it controls our lives is by deflecting accountability. There are definitely things in our lives that we can't control, but there is a massive amount of things we can control. 
I can't control that Steve tries to reach out to me, but I can control the avenues that are available for him to do that, like email, phone, and Facebook. And I can control my own reaction when he does find a way to reach out. Rather than engage, I could shut it down. Rather than respond, I could choose to leave it alone. Yet most of the time, at least in that area, I was choosing to deflect accountability with words like, it's not my fault. I can't control him. He makes his own decisions. Mm, Those are all true statements, but I was allowing them to keep me in a place of inaction. Recovery demands accountability for both my decisions and actions, as well as my inactions. I can't control many of the triggers that come into my life, but I can control what I do when I feel triggered. That's why I have the saying that says I work a program because triggers are inevitable. Not because I think I can control triggers by working a program, but because triggers are inevitable. And working my program is my actions, my part of being able to be prepared when the triggers come. When the triggers do come, do I work my program? Do I make a phone call and reach out? Or does my inaction control me and my sobriety? When triggers happen, do I take control and minimize their exposure in my life? I talk about this one a lot, but a big one for me is the radio. If I allow the radio to be on in my car... Do I take the action to change it when the song is triggering for me or do I just endure? Big decision in my life. Step three asks us to make a decision. It is the essence of the serenity prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. We must accept that there are things we cannot control. Stop exerting our self-will and trying to control everything in our lives. We also must have the courage to change the things we can. We must take action in our lives, in the things within our sphere of influence. And we must seek the wisdom to know the difference. I don't know about you, but rarely do I know the difference between these two things. Sometimes I feel like I should be able to control something that I really can't. Sometimes I feel like I can't control something that, in fact, I do have control over. This is a delicate balance, and this is why the third step ends the way it does. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. This decision we are going to make is to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And that's where we're going to pick up next time. The care of God. What does that mean? How do I know what that is? How do I find trust in a higher power that he cares for me? I challenge you this week to take an inventory of the actions and the inactions in your life. Be a decision maker. Step up. Give up your self-will, run riot, and start focusing on the things you can control in your life. Step three marks the beginning of this willingness and humility that we need to work the remainder of the steps. This step is not for wimps. This is for the serious-minded addict who knows that she cannot control the show anymore and desperately wants help. This step begins the turning point in our recovery that will set us on a path for long-term change in our life. 
I'm excited to continue with this step in episode 26. Step three is one of my favorite steps. Can can you have favorites? I don't know. Probably not, right? We should they should all be our favorites. But I really love step three. I know it marked a real turning point in my own recovery. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for tuning in and doing something positive, taking action for your own recovery today. As always, I want you to remember that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how you feel in this moment, no matter if your life is full of control or inaction, you are worth recovery. 100% worth it. I, I know that. I know that. Keep up the fight. I think about you. I pray for you. I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.